0: Put your headphones on, and you'll be able to hear your voice, and he'll do his magic to fix it up.
1: Um, I'm good. Good? How's your headphones, Shimon? I'm good. Need some more, uh, need some more bass? You good? You I just gain. Mind. Oh, your uh, thing is falling off there. Hold on. Uh, Mine falling off? Uh, this thing here.
0: Oh, my goodness. You know how much more comfortable this is?
1: Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why we've never done this. I don't know either. Every, every podcast is a new experience. podcast i am your host i, am Abdullah. I got uh, my good friend
0: Shimon the biz here hi everyone how the you biz. doing how are you doing man i'm doing pretty good
1: we're getting over uh, a little bit of illness we had uh we had the flu i had a tree fall on my car um you had some sickness in your house
0: everybody was sick we had all, some
1: nasal infections all types it, of, it, it,
0: it strep bronchitis yeah. it just it was everything yeah i think 38 million people in the united states got the flu this year
1: that was heavy, and I'm, you know, I'm still never going to get the flu shot. I'm not going to do it because uh, I don't think I've gone through many years of not getting the flu shot. Um,
0: I, but, uh, I've had many flu shots, but I haven't had it for a number of years. But this is the worst. I've, I wasn't that sick as far as like fever, yeah. But a lot of people were ill.
1: Uh, Shaman, I don't know if you know this or not, but um, this is a very special the Not Dumb Podcast podcast. Um, the reason is we we came out of hiatus for our guest today. We were actually on a break, and this will be um, put out probably around the first day of Ramadan. So Ramadan Mubarak to all our Muslim listeners out there. Um, But we were taking a break until the end of Ramadan. However, I met this fine gentleman, Francis Buck, and he was kind enough to come on the podcast. Um, He has a very unique story, and uh, in the beginning of this podcast, we're going to talk about his story. But towards the end, we're going to talk about Sudan and South Sudan and the stuff that they're going through over there. Um, as you guys know, we have a very intense interest in Africa, all the countries. We want to know about all of them. Why? Because uh, Shimon and I are sick of racism and we need to get out of here. That's number one. Number <laughs> two, <laughs> number two uh, we, we have a longing to um, find our roots. Uh, in Africa. Um, I have no idea where I come from. This is part of uh, being a slave. Uh, my ancestors were slaves. Shaman's ancestors were slaves. And um, part of that means that you get cut off from your own people. You don't know anything. So all I know is my American experience. Shaman is more Caribbean. I have some Caribbean in my... Uh, background too but he's more in touch with that but past that he doesn't really know much about it either No, you know so I would like to know more about my own people where do we come from you know what's going on over there why are we over here how come we're all scared to go over there because we think it's all about you know dust diseases and flies and poor people and that's really not the case you know so we're here trying to make the case for um, our people learning more about where we come from we're
0: our people. We don't know our tribes that we. I don't know my from. tribes. No clue.
1: I don't even know my past. My past. My great great grandmother. I have no idea where my, you know, where they're coming from, besides slavery. I can I go to the eighteen thirties on the African okay, side. Okay, but I'm saying, i I just. I, I just, have no idea. Yeah, it, it's. I think it's kind of messed up. So. In that same vein, I met this, uh, this brother. I want to say young brother, but he's actually older than me. <laughs> he just looks young. Um, Francis Buck. Uh, Francis Buck is a prominent South Sudanese political human rights activist and a dual citizen of South Sudan and America. He is an author of the book, Escape from Slavery, The True Story of My 10 Years in Captivity and My Journey to Freedom in America, published by St. Martin's Press in 2003. He is a survivor of slavery from the age of seven years old until 17. He is formerly the Minister for Information, Culture, Youth, and Sports on the state level in the government of the Republic of South Sudan. He is now a permanent resident of the U.S. And somehow, I don't know how, but he is gracing our podcast with his presence. I thank you for being here, sir. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, It's a pleasure to meet you. Um, I know about your story. My wife has read your story. I just know about it. Um, and I told you when I first met you, I, I recognize you from somewhere. Um, but thank you for coming in. And I, this is, this is, this is, you know, I've never met someone who was a slave. You know, I don't know what that really means. I know my ancestors went through it. I know his ancestors went through it. But I don't, I've never spoken to someone who's actually lived and, as a slave, not to mention you've obviously seen war, because they've captured you and all that kind of stuff. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself, I mean, you know, your upbringing and stuff like that. Like how, where did you grow up in Sudan? Um, how was it before all of this happened? Thank you very much, uh, Mr.
2: Imant uh, and Mr. Shaman, for having me on your podcast.
1: My pleasure, my pleasure.
2: I am humbled. I am humbled. I am privileged yeah. to be with you and to discuss with you, the tale of my story, and maybe a bit of my young country, Republic of South Sudan, still wrongly being called Sudan. Sudan was one country prior to July 9, 2011. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, very unfortunately, due to long struggle of my people, Mm -hmm. since the British left our country, that they have colonized in in 1956, the people of South Sudan prior to British departure has always called for their rights, their God-given rights to be given that opportunity to worship their own God or belief Mm. and to dress the way God created them as black Africans, Mm. the way they dress, the way they eat, the dance, the Mm. languages they speak, so that opportunity was denied of us until very, very recently, on July nine, two 2011, after long, Africa's longest civil war, they have claimed the life of over two millions. Wow, and two causing, million? Yes, wow. and causing 4.5 million South Sudanese. Wow. Uh, flee away from the country. Mm. I'm one of them. I came to this country in late 1999 as a refugee after a long, Um, struggle to get refugee uh, status to come to America through Egypt, Mm. but I will talk about that a little bit in a later time, but I just wanted to begin with my story because this is what brought me here, and I think it would introduce the story that I just mentioned briefly of Sudan and South Sudan now as a young country.
1: May I interrupt? So it's South Sudan, I'm sorry, because I think I said Sudan a bunch of times. Is is north? Is it called North Sudan and South Sudan
2: now? Well, we don't use north and south. We use, um, yeah, we use south for South Sudan because it was a southern region of that sure. country called Sudan. Sure. But when it got split in 2011 yeah. on July 9th, it became Republic of South Sudan. That is South Sudan, the country that is predominantly inhabited by Africans. Uh, black africans
1: so what's the northern part called and
2: okay. the northern part remained sudan retained the same the Got name it.
1: sudan that okay. was
2: uh, named for us and by the way sudan still is the black african uh, country too because the word sudan in arabic means aswat
1: hmm. oh yeah and aswat
2: and aswat mean black
1: yeah <laughs> so
2: it is our country yeah the issue of sudan has been Somewhat played with with everybody that come yeah. and ruled in that country. Used to we used to have it uh, saying they in Arabic they said the whole Arab Sudan, mm. meaning when the Arab entered to Sudan, that means Sudan was there. Uh, you know, a country that was uh, belonged to black Africans, but when the Arab comes in, uh, they have actually changed the face of Sudan pushing and taking over the country, yeah. making the black African who are the sole uh, owner of that land. Indigenous Indigenous that, yeah. were being mm. somewhat marginalized and, and I think that the mistake also that was done by British because uh, they were the part of that uh, colony that colonized that and when they left, yeah. they were recolonized by the Arabs. Yeah. The black African and that's what my people Resort for the arms struggle mm-hmm. for the longs in 1947. 1972 uh, we signed a peace that last for 10 years and was broken. And uh, we went back in 1983 until 2005 we signed a comprehensive peace agreement called CPA mm-hmm. uh, between the Sudanese fundamentalist government in the Khartoum dance. Uh, this the words that we use as a company was lost by National Congress Party mm-hmm. uh, and National Islamic Front people of South Sudan were given an opportunity to determine their fate in 2011 to vote for either uh, secessions uh, to form their own country alone or a man in one country. However we overwhelmingly voted for an independent country called Republic of South Sudan today and the world recognized that and the very first country to recognize that was Sudan. The President wow. Bashir who have just got ousted away after 30 years in the Ruling the country through the military, so coup. he was pro that. He yes, was he okay. because he knew that there is no way we would ever accept the, yeah. the union of Sudan because Sudan has been always one, but we never felt that we are part of them. Part of that country because yeah. what make you full citizens is one. There is no way you must be human, or no subhumans or something else. We felt that we were treated last. So you guys beings. were treated as subhumans.
1: We're subhuman in that by country by Arabs, yeah. Or by just
2: yeah, you would use that because uh, Sudan okay. is yes. So basically, that's what made us. Yeah. Why would I be a second class in my own country?
1: Mm. That's what we're asking and, and ourselves And that's the here. question. That's the yeah. question
2: that we asked, and yeah. we because nobody answered the question, we pick up arms, we fought mm. uh, for over two decades, until finally we were granted our rights to form our own country called Republic of South Sudan. However, South Sudan was one of the regions of, uh, of, of of country of Sudan. I hailed from the state called, given name of Arab, Northern Barakazal State. Barakazal? Northern Barakazal State. Northern okay. And my village is called Gorian. G-O-R hyphen A, capital A, Y-E-N. Gorian, okay. okay. And the county is called Gokmashar, G-O-K mm-hmm. and M-A-C-H-A-R. So, in that county, in that community called Gorian, I was living a life like any other child, in any village or Harpan yeah. um, city and one of the evening because initially in my village kids don't go to school at the time Mm. and this is I'm talking 1986 I was a seven years old boy having no idea about my surrounding even a father village I don't know Um, because I was never taken to school because Mm. that region called South Sudan was absolutely marginalized by the Sudanese government. They never allowed school, they destroyed, the school that were actually constructed by British then, when British still present, were actually closed down, everything was actually moved to the north. Wow. Because when you come to the north of Sudan, it doesn't matter what part, you will either convert or not have an access because of uh, racism that were going on and religion that were used as a tool mm. to, um, Marginalize others so in South Sudan kids in Southern Sudan kids at that time do not go to school and What we do in every morning. We gather underneath trees In my parents have a big mango tree In our house, and we gather underneath it mm-hmm. uh, every other day and kids from neighboring uh, village comes they play with us and what make my my mango tree to become a place where a kid gather is because my parents considered rich. They call them ajak in my native language because my father earned a lot of cattle. Mm,
0: okay. In
2: Africa, you have a lot of cattle. Then I That's don't know money. the value now. Yeah, it like having a million of dollars in the bank accounts. Wow. So my father was having a lot of cattle. How he, many cows did he have? I don't know, but a couple like, thousand, I would say. And uh, he. Wow, a couple thousand cows. Wow. Yeah, That's and he. And there with the mixture with the goats and yeah. sheep and everything, other wow. animals. And he have also farms. He farms a lot and uh, people call him Ajak in my native language, in Dinka. Mm. Ajak means Richmond. And I knew that uh, he always offer help to the people, to mm. poor people. Um, and the kids who come and play with me, um, I always make sure that I share my milk with them. And I even one time asked my mother the same cup that she provide me my milk, the same that should be given uh, to the kids, every kid that come. Mm -hmm. Um, And what we do, we actually sort of play, making cows out of clay or mud. Little (laughs) toys, (laughs) yeah. 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 Yes, and the reason we do this, boys in particular, to predetermine who will become rich one day, who can make more cow, you compete, making them nice shape, mm. otherwise they will deny it, that you fake them.
1: Oh wow, so who made and the best? The best, the best yeah, yeah. and many. Yeah, 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 <laughs> wow. The
2: best and many because yeah. when you are 15 years old, in our traditions, uh, custom, you will be, initially you have a tribal mark, mm. as if you're a boy, and mm. that time you are now no longer a boy, you'll be called a man. Mm. Yeah. And from there onward, you would have to work hard, to have your own cows, you have your own things, because when time comes for you to get married, you yeah. have to provide, I have this amount of cows. The father will give some, the uncle will give some, and everybody in wow. your relative will provide. Yeah. But you must have your own first in yeah. order to uh, Got it. introduce yeah. what you do. So we make uh, cows out of that, and it was a game that we we're playing in the evening where my mother came to me and called me my African name, Piol, P-I-O-L. Piol, okay. and and I just looked at her and she said, come, come over, I went, and she was just standing about maybe 30 feet away from where the kids uh, shining and making all noise and working, and she said, do you mind, I want you to go to local market to sell um, boiled eggs and peanuts, Mm. and I looked down. I want to say no, and I did say no. And she said, "Did you say no?" Mm. And I immediately turned back, uh, lift on my head, and I said, "No." I said, "Yes, I'm going to go." Oh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And that's the time I went back to my friends, yeah. including my two siblings, sisters. Mm-hmm. I told them that I would meet you guys again tomorrow. She handed me um, those you know, peanuts and eggs. Mm-hmm. And there was a girl about 16 years old, her name is Nubol. she was our leader. Mm-hmm. Leading us to 15 minute walk okay. to local markets. Yeah, okay. Um, and the reason she was leading us, because I don't know money, and when a customer purchase something, she would take money. Uh, but my job is to sit there.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: To just watch them, because she was doing some other thing as well. Oh, okay. That was the last evening that I, hug my mother and talk to her. Oh that God. was the mm-hmm. last evening, the last day that I ever seen my father and my two sisters again. You were seven. At seven, so we took a walk, we went to Marketplace. And when I say Marketplace, it's not like in America or in the West Country mm-hmm. where you have a mall or a big building where everybody's sailing different sort of thing. Mm-hmm. People there got underneath the tree. Maybe now they have a modern way that you have real market. Yeah. But then, you know, people got underneath a big tree and they sailed and by. Uh, and I was sitting there next uh, to adults that I heard talking. And people were talking about smoke. And some saying that they heard the guns. Being young, sometimes you don't pay attention to many things. So I was just sitting there, literally knowing nothing what people were talking, until I saw people packing. And leaving the market, I think those are the only people who survive, in case. Um, and literally after that, we saw um, people coming towards us from every direction, just stormed the market, people with swords, and on horseback.
1: So they surrounded the market and came in, inwards. Yep.
2: And these were Arab tribes, you call them Bagara or Arab uh Jinjawit, or they give them many other names we call them Lazegat, or Bagara. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are Sudanese Arabs tribes that Sudanese government, Bashir at the time, mm. um, not Bashir, I mean Sadig al Mahdi at this time, you know, tell them to go to the south to raid villages. Oh, he told them to go this is from the government the government oh. absolutely is aware it's a way that sending the government using religions and using even those in for what black africans yeah calling us infidels people who do not believe in any religion because okay. as i said they were using wow. religion as a tool yeah yeah um wish to in arabic they say using using slave to kill other slaves that was the, the strategy, using these black Africans, who are predominantly Muslims in the Western Sudan, therefore, mm. with the mixture of Arab tribes Rejigat, and other tribes, to go to South Sudan, kill the black men, abandon the older women, take the young women and children, and livestock, goats, cows, anything that they could take. So can back I back to the north.
1: So can I reiterate so you said northern Sudan Arabs are sending northern Sudan Arabs and northern Sudan black Muslims down to South Sudan to raid and take your take all the all the all your goods and take all the women and children to slavery. Uh, okay.
2: That's what was the strategy then. Wow. So the classic uh,
0: that's, plunder they were plundering your village, because your village had, and your family had wealth. Yes. In, 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 that, in that context. And, and to take well, that. Well, it wasn't
1: just his family, because they, everyone. Everyone had it. A, it was well. happening
2: across the South Sudan, yeah, and particularly the area that was hit by this, you know, raiding, mm-hmm. with particular the region called Bar Barakazal is a huge region, yeah, have a lot of populations, oh, and man. my state and my community, the village and the county is in the border of the river called uh, Kier in my native language. Mm K-I-I-R. And they call it Bahar Arab in Arabic. uh, Arab River, in other words. So we are bordering, Mm -hmm. uh, and the people on this side of the river, of Kier, are Arab tribes. Yeah. And people that are from the Western Sudan, nearby. And then us here, are black African who are predominantly Christians mm. in the south. Who are being either perceived or based on the Sudanese ideology. We we do not deserve to be uh, who God made us to be in our own beliefs and because um, they want to call the whole country or in other words, they want to make Sudan an Arab country. They want to make it an Islamic country. Where some Sudanese, us, who are not Arabs, who yeah. are not Muslims, resist. Yeah. Yeah. And when we resist, they declare war against us, a holy, uh, they call a holy jihad against. Like a jihad, a holy war. Um, yeah, a holy war okay. against black hmm. uh, Christians and other enemies. Too who are traditional believers. So that was the strategy used by the Sudanese government. Mm. So, so these Arabs raiders who actually come with uh, the black Africans who are from Darfur at the time, mm-hmm. were using religion as a tool to go and kill us and take away our children, us, that's where I end up, so that you can be converted to Islam, mm. brainwash, and definitely change your identity Hmm. to totality. That's that's what was happening. So my village was raided soon I left the village to the marketplace. My parents and almost everybody in the village mm, were burned alive. Oh man um, and the alive. same people march into the marketplace. Phew. Um if you ever watched the movie called uh Wanda about genocide in, yeah. the, in Rwanda in nineteen ninety four yeah I was on the same movie. It wasn't it very just, different from it just that. just nobody filmed it. Nobody oh talked God. about it or wanted to talk about it or saw it. Because I watched people kill around me. I saw blood running like water in a small river. Wow. I heard people shouting wow. for exit. Mm. But there were no exit because every corner was actually seized by these people. Did and they were very selective who they killed. They were killing the men who had been physical. They're banning the women who are very old. They're taking women that are very physically strong. Young boy and girl were being gathered and taken as a property oh because God. that's what the Sudanese government tells them. Wow. Kill, do whatever, whatever is there, is to compensate yourself, take it, including all livestock, cattle. So that's how I end up being kidnapped on that day mm. on May 15, 1986 and taken to one of the northern Sudanese uh, mm. a farm called uh, Abu Matari, uh, mm. and settled in Kerio where I was actually taking care of the cattle mm-hmm. of my master. And my welcome when I was first welcomed there was with beaten. Mm-hmm. I was being beaten and called a beat black slave. So a you, beat you, mean in Arabic just mean black slave. That was uh, the word, the first word I heard when I first welcomed to their farm.
1: So as soon as you get there, yes. they beat you as, uh, as, like basically they establish their authority. They beat me, they send the kids, they can
2: spit on me, they can pee on me, they could do anything and amuse themselves and just laugh aloud as they can. Wait, I'm sorry, did you say you had brothers and sisters or no? My two sisters, things? my two sisters, my mother and father, yeah. were actually martyred in the same day. Oh my God. My yes. older brother, who's still alive today, was actually with my uncle, maternal my uncle, in different states. Oh, within man. South Sudan, yeah uh, our village at that time is now a state. so he survived he 's one of the child soldiers. Have yeah. you heard about the lost boy of South Sudan and lost girls? yeah, uh, my brother walked three months mm-hmm. from my region in Barkazal to Ethiopia well, in nineteen eighty seven yes it, the people walk for three months Damn. they 're the part of what they call uh, Red Army or they call them uh, uh, child soldiers, in other words. Wow. So he was a part of the SPLM, SPLAs. SPLM means Sudan People Liberation Movement, which is a political wing, and the SPLA is Sudan People Liberation Army that was actually formed as to fight mm-hmm. and liberate the black Africans that are being uh, brutally um, killed and marginalized by the Sudan government. Mm-hmm. was formed by one of the most intellect, South Sudanese, is named Dr. John Garang, who educated in the United States, had a PhD uh, in Iowa State University and went back, and he was in the army, of Sudanese army, and when he saw his people being uh, mistreated, yeah. he actually uh, rebel, he rebelled against the government, and then he formed the army called SPLA and SPLM in 19. 19- <coughs> Uh, in nineteen eighty three, mm. in the town of Bor, in uh, which is an upper Nile state, one of the states in southern uh, Sudan. So my brother joined that um, my brother joined that army at age of eleven, <laughs> and he was a child soldier, and thank God, he still survived. He s- survived many you know bullet uh, wounds, and but he's still alive he's, today. He's the only one left. Wow. Uh, of course, uh, in African traditions, you know, men married many. My father has also another, the oldest wife, has uh, four children, mm-hmm. two girls and a boys, of whom uh, three are still surviving. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, Two half-brothers and one half-sister are surviving. They survived because also they were in different village that was narrated mm-hmm. in that particular day. And mm-hmm. uh, particular month. Uh,
1: so... So that was a very coordinated effort. So they, it wasn't just your village. They were raiding a bunch of villages.
2: They raided every village. Yeah, the entire region was actually being raided over, and it was, a we call it a, a war zone. Hmm. So there was a fight all over in South Sudan, in Southern Sudan at the time. They were fighting. They have the Sudanese Herman Army. They have base yeah. in these uh, villages. They have base in this town. They have yeah. base everywhere, and they were fighting to... Get rid of all these rebels who were actually fighting for their rights. But yeah. I think we
1: we survived them. So I have a um your your story is uh is really hitting me, man. I don't know if I'm getting soft or hard, but um no, I have a seven. I have I have twin seven year old boys. They're almost seven. So I can't ad- like I can't even imagine what that like if they were just basically just my wife and I were gone all the brothers and sisters are gone, and then they're just by themselves. Let's say just one of them survived. I can't even imagine how hard that would be, man. That, that'd just have to be so scary, man.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I'm thinking, because we both have 10, 11-year-old daughters, oh, and, man. and imagine your 11-year-old <sighs> brother walking three months, and then having to fight, because warfare is hard on you, little kid. So you both had this from this one invasion, these different experiences. So, um, I, I know you'll get to it, but I'm just wondering, when you talk with your brother, since he had, you had the, the slavery, but then this moral awakening to be a human rights advocate, and your brother was for, compelled, for whatever reason, to, to to fight for his own survival and then to the, your warfare, how do your conversations go about those two experiences about the violation of, of South Sudan?
2: Well, what make us different today after we reunite, uh, my brother and I, it was in 2000 when uh, the organization that I work with here in America accidentally met my brother. And uh, he was one of the guards that were guarding the commissioner mm. of one of the uh, villages that they have visited Um, in my state, northern Boracazal, in 2000, there's a Christian organization called CSI, Christian Solidarity International, based in Zurich, in Switzerland. They working together with the American anti-Savik group which is based in Boston where I used to work, and they have a newsletter that has a cover of my picture. In 2000 when they went to um, southern Sudan, a region They sneak into the, it's very risky at the time because it was a war zone, as I said. South Sudan was completely made as a battlefield by the Sudanese government because where they hunt people, they hunt, they want to take over the entire country. So, when they met him, he looked like me, and he was saying, uh, do you have a brother in America called Francis Buck? And he, oh, said, he looks like, like you? Yeah, because <laughs> he didn't know that I was alive. He thought that I was killed with my parents. Wow. <laughs> yeah, because that's the story that he heard that yeah. uh, your parents were killed and he thought I was uh, yeah. killed with them. He didn't know that I was sent to local markets and I was kidnapped and taken to the north and later on escaped and went to Egypt and to America. So they called me from there using satellite phones. Uh, they got Threya. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was able to speak with him in 2009. I oh, met wow. him first time. Yeah, and we we both were crying. And he only had 40 minutes to see me because he was yeah, uh, you know, in the military, and he only was given very short time to see me. And we met in Juba. Oh man, at the hotel called Juba Bridge. I remember he got off on the uh, pickup truck. And uh, there are two guards going with him, and he he hugged me. He was crying. He said, I could not believe oh, a member of my family is still alive. And I could not also believe he was still alive himself. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we farewelled each other. Uh, 40 minutes later, he said, I have no way. I had to go uh, because uh, he was actually on the mission. You know, and military are very strict. So he left, but I was able to meet him again in 2001 when I went. Mm-hmm. And then kept uh, asking him to leave the army uh, until in 2012. That's when he listened to me. After he insane other seven shots, hmm. but he survived. Uh, you know, fighting in all different war. Um, he is disabled now, but he's fine. He's he's uh, he's still alive. Uh, he has kids, and I'm helping now educate some of his kids wow. um, because um, he's the only one. Uh, alive from my mother, him and I, we're only two. Um, mm. And of course, as I said, I have two half-brothers and mm. one half-sister that are still alive. So this is the foundation of a family that still lives there. But it's no longer about me and him, mm. and about those family who don't even have anybody remand. <laughs> Some family are completely wipe out. Yeah, hmm. um, you know some villages are clean up. Uh, they don't have even those whom their children made it to the army were killed during the battles, and those who were in the village were killed by these uh, raiders, Arab uh, Murahaline or gingerweed people on horseback and camels who come and kill anybody that could come uh, in front of them. So. Um, the question that I have today, what actually made up my brother is still very violent person, although he's disabled, cannot fight, he said, I will never give up you know, using my arm because that's what kept me alive until today.
1: How old is he now? Um, he's three years, I think 43.
2: 43, okay. Mm. 43. Yeah. So basically, um, he's still very, he believed that you know. gun would save him because he said, if I didn't have gun, I would have not survive until now mm. and because God won me that's why I got shot seven times and I'm still alive yeah and I told him that you need to forgive and forget and be positive he said that's you so we have <laughs> when you ask me how we reconcile these experiences yeah. um, he believed in violence and nothing to be violent anymore because we have our own country now I tell him you need to be positive be someone who should work in how to help um, bring our community because South Sudan is a multicultural uh, or diverse you know community to we have 64 tribes yeah mm-hmm. and each ethnic group uh, you know suspicious of other and particularly my ethnic group uh, Dinka with the largest 45 percent of the total population of uh, 12 million or 13 million depending accurate uh, mm-hmm. census yeah which we never had. Um, it's always, everybody's suspicious of them that they are, become like our soon sus dominating everything because they are many. Mm-hmm. And there were many in the army. So I will tell them that's an opportunity to use also to make sure that we are listening to anybody that have a concern about our young country, and how we should govern ourselves and how we should live. And that is to talk about social cohesion, how people should be together, accepting one another because, We knew why we seceded away from Sudan, because of injustices, uh, because of mistreatment and marginalization, and we do not want to practice the same things in our young country, because everybody deserves to be given opportunity and to be the first class of their own country, not the second class or any other. Absolutely. So that's where, so for me, I advocate for that. Um, For uh, South Sudan that's uh, embrace all its citizens, mm-hmm. regardless of religion. In South Sudan, we have Muslims and Christians living together. And we say, you know, you, know, you worship your own God, and I worship my own God, but country belong to both of us. Everybody should be respected on his or her religion mm-hmm. that you worship, Mm-hmm. And I should be respected, and then the country is above all of us and country belongs to all of us. This is the South Sudan that we have. If you go to South Sudan today, you will see many mosques, mm-hmm. and you see many uh, people still get along.: uh, You, know, churches. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People get along. Yeah. The marketplace in anything? No. Mm-hmm. We did not use because we believe the people of South Sudan were fighting. We're fighting for equality, justice and uh, prosperity. So we never used religion as a reason to secede away. But uh, Khartoum was using that as a tool to divide the country uh, because they introduced Sharia law, mm. which is uh, a law that if you get caught consuming alcohol, they will shabba one of your arms. All these kind of things they do, you know, which we as Christians said we cannot accept these laws. Can
3: That's I, prohibited everything.
1: So can I go back for a minute? Um, what what was the original? So I know they used religion as a means to divide the, the, the populace, but what was the original? What set off the war?
2: Well, the set off, as I said, you know, it's been Sudan since... Uh, it got it independent on 1-1-1956 from the British. Okay. Um, the people of South Sudan has always complaints about inequality. We never get represented equitably on the government, national government. We never have equal service. Distributions in the southern, southern region of Sudan.
1: So you're saying between Christians and Muslims, the Christians weren't getting we, treated properly.
2: This is not we use we say black African in the south, and you know because uh, we have uh, some Muslims too with some Christian within the
1: north. So it was the Arabs that were not treating the black Africans. Yes, properly. so okay, pretty much the, the
2: the region of southern Sudan, which is has a lot of populations, 64 tribes as I mentioned. Yeah, yeah. Was totally denied. Right. They do not have accurate, uh, you know, an inaccurate uh, representation in the government. Mm -hmm. They don't get services. For instance, no schools in southern Sudan regions, no modern hospitals, no roads, nothing. Mm -hmm. Bringing everything to Khartoum, the capital of Sudan, and other part of Sudan, and leaving South Sudan completely desert. And hunting, hunting down every person that is there, displacing them, killing them, and, and doing all kind of things. So basically, and that, that's before the war. This, this, this is, yes, yes, yeah, okay. yes. So basically, the people of South, Southern Sudan said, "Well, we have every right. This is our country. And if whoever government leader that leading Sudan at the time, from Abu Time to many other president, Nemeri to." including Umar al-Bashir, who came into leadership by a military coup in 1989, the people of South Sudan said, "We are going to pick up the arms and fight for our rights." Got it. And that's when the fight uh, started. It. Okay. Uh, but there were a nyanyai Nyan one before that, uh, which was another era from 19, uh, 1956, you know, to 1972. Uh, people were fighting. Mm-hmm. Our, our leaders have been always shouting for Sudanese government to look at the issue of South Sudan before it get out of hands. No president ever addressed uh, the people of South Sudan concerns, how they've been discriminated, using religion, how they been denied access to mm. resources yeah. of the country, education, and everything else.
1: Did the Arabs come in at the same time as the British? No, no. The British came in first. Yeah. And then the Arabs came in. They,
2: the Arabs were there with us, and uh, the history is long. I'm not uh, so sure, and I want to give any wrong um, history of uh, Sudan back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, the issue of Sudan well defined that Arabs, they say in the issue that they enter of Arabs. Mm-hmm. When you say somebody entered Arab to Sudan, that means Sudan exists. Yeah. It was exist and was actually led by people, and who are those people? Were black Africans, yeah. were yeah. us, uh, Christian and Muslim both. Mm. And then they came in, but because of the power that we handed to them when the British left,
1: they took that power and used it, but recolonized us. They gave it to the Arabs. Yes, Got it. the British left. So that's that's okay.
2: that's, that's that's where. They, so
1: let, let me let me paraphrase for all the the Americans out there. So the British came in they gave power to the Arabs who were already there, right? The Arabs were already there? Mm-hmm. Okay, and then the Arabs used that power to subjugate um, and to mistreat the black Africans who were already there. Yes. Okay,
0: all right. So, that's exact, <clears throat> very similar to, you hear the same story about the British doing the same thing in Palestine where the, because the Hebrews and the Muslims were yeah. fighting against and the British give the power to the Jews. They did the same thing in Kashmir. Between, so it is It's not a Unfortunately It's a common playbook That the British used Across the world When they exited The left the They leave Eastern chaos people. They basically
1: Le- leave chaos And let you guys fight it out So before Before the British came Arabs and black Africans Did they get along? Before, well, before the British Before
2: 1956 okay. I, I I The word getting along Would be I don't know how best I could confirm it, but we, this, this racism has always been there.
1: It's always been there, okay.
2: Because uh, how this black African look and how languages, they, we, we, we have our own way of life. Yeah. We have one languages, yeah. as I said, Southern Sudan alone has 64 tribes, or yeah. could be more. Yeah. Each tribe have their own dialogue, <clears throat> have their own way of life. Mm. The food they eat, yeah. the way they dress, yeah. the song they sing, and everything else. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's how Sudan is created it. In the Western Sudan, in Darfur, you have all these predominant all black African. Mm. But they are all Muslims, 100%. So they even, some of them don't speak, they have Masali, they have four, they have many tribes just like us. Yeah. But some of them, they have been brand watch mm. and somehow converted to only worship uh, which is the islam that 's fine, and even forgetting their own language native languages mm. so and they were using used, using these black Africans again as us in the south, calling us uh, infidels, people who do not believe in
1: religions and all they using that as a tool so well how did you how did you guys get Christianity because christianity is not is not uh, native to you either right it is uh, well when you we say that the country
2: was colonized by British. Wise. This was a religion that was spread early enough, you know, when colonies did, was I
0: worshipping. Was and, yes. So did, I was wondering, did uh, Christianity come to Sudan from the British, or did it come from Abyssinia from before? Oh, um, Ethiopia. Yeah. Because, yeah. yeah. or I, I, it, it I, probably. You know, interesting question for a later time. So, but anyway, the people were living there. It had some tension, but it wasn't like when in in the 1950s after the British left where you essentially over, you know, 50, 60 years, you only had 10 years not at war.
2: Yes, that is exactly right. Only 10 years That when we signed um, the peace in Addis Ababa in 1972. That peace lasts for 10 years. 1983, it was broken by Nemeri, General Geoffrey Nemeri, who was the president of Sudan then, who said, this peace is not a grant or a Bible, and he declared a holy war against the black African in the South. So that's when the peace, the peace was broken, yeah. and that's when the people of South Sudan uh, intensified, said, let us regroup and do something in 1983. They formed what they call SPLM mm-hmm. and SPLA, Sudan People Liberation Army and Sudan People Liberation uh, uh, Movement. So, and that war did not stop sooner. It went over 22 decades almost until 2005, then we signed the peace. Since yeah. 1983, we've been fighting.
0: I mean, Southern Sudan has oil, right? We have. We are oil rich yeah region? i I'm, I'm you know to break a peace and the tactic that they use of plundering which was paying the, the invaders so rather than they pay them they were paying those guys to plunder the the wealth that your region had so south, south sudan to pay for those invaders to do that what would and they were using the religion divide and the ethnic divides as a tool. What was the benefit for the leadership in Sudan at the time? Was there an economic, why, why were they manipulating the, the West, Darfur in Western Sudan against Southern, Southern yeah, Sudan? Yeah, so like Am- why? What was, the, what, was the, what was the reason to cause, because so 50 years of, t- of warfare and even the last 20 years of warfare hurts your country hurts your people it doesn't really they have to be a they ha, someone had had to benefit from that to manipulate it for so long
2: well in in our understanding and my understanding is it was using religion as an excuse that those black African the who have resist to accept to be Arabized and Islamized was the tool that we use telling this black African in Darfur you kill them because they, they are uh, kufar. And using that as a tool of marginalizing the region to provide services, equal services, like they give to any other part of Sudan to those in the south. The economic benefits were there. If within the time they've been fighting, the Sudanese government were using Chinese to actually uh, explore the oil in our own region, in southern Sudan. Hmm. And the oil was flowing to Sudan until today, as we speak. By the way, we have no port, uh, we have no refinery owned in southern Sudan. Really? Everything is still flowing, the oil is still living in unity states, one of the uh, <coughs> state of South Sudan, in Aparnai region, flowing to Port Sudan. Uh, and then to the world markets through so, Sudan so Sudan was actually already while we were fighting they controlled the oil rich uh, uh, area yeah. in upper Nile and they were actually using Chinese to take this uh, oil away so yeah. it is economics it is religion and it is also racism that this black african women. so
1: on. so while you while the north and the south were fighting over religion or or whatever else uh, the British were coming in and getting the oil no s-
2: not the British British is no longer there at that time oh, okay. I'm talking about the, the Sudanese the British already left us in 1956 okay. I'm talking at the time the period that the people of South Sudan been fighting yeah. the Sudanese government who has the control and power the Arabs military power yes okay were actually controlling the oil-rich so region w- of southern Sudan, which belonged to us, the oil. Got it. And they were using Chinese experts, wow, companies to come and get it, to and to get it. it and all and that because stuff. refinery were built, the pipeline was actually built all the way from Upper State of South Sudan, coming to Port Sudan, and until today, after we became independent, mm-hmm. we are paying them fees of very substantial amount to make sure that we use the pipe until when we are able to construct our own in the South.
1: I'm not, I don't think you went over this, but um, if I could go back for just a moment. Um, how did you get out of the slavery situation? So you were there for 10 years, but how did you make your way here so that we're having this conversation today?
2: Well, I got out after multiple attempts. Mm. I would take it at the age of seven, mm-hmm. spend seven good years, making 14 years old. And my job during that time was taking care of the goats. Mm-hmm. And when my master saw me doing well with goats, when I say goats, I'm not talking about five, ten, or twenty, or one single 100s i I'm talking hundreds of them. Wow. Sometimes it could be thousands. And you take care of By yourself. That's my job. I have to Whew. make sure I'm running after them. Wow keeping an eye, making sure that I take them to where they can get water, yeah, a place where they have grass, where they can eat, Man, make sure I bring works. them back home. Yeah, um, And he then promoted me to take care of the cattle, cows, hundreds and thousands of them. That was my job. One of the day I said to myself, how long I'm going to be in this place? Hmm and how long I'm going to endure the way they treat me every single day. Um, Being denied everything and being forced to sleep near to animals and being called on a daily basis a a beat black slave. And I I just tried to escape one time and I was captured back by my master's uh, cousin, his name Ahmed. Mm -hmm. I was beaten and I was asked not to do again. But in my heart, I said I would rather die than be a slave because I hate the way they treat me yeah. and the way they treat other slaves. Yeah. I spent two days and I escaped again the second time. Second attempt was the most dangerous attempt because my master himself, uh, Jimma Abdullah, was watching over me. I was the first one to wake up and the last oh, one yeah. to go to bed. So it was around 4 or 3 in the morning mm-hmm. when I escaped. Yeah. So he allowed me to walk very far and then he got on his favorite horse we call Rifai one of the fastest and strongest horse yeah. when and he took his rifle with him so when he came near me he told me to stop and I stopped and he told me to lie down on my chest and give my hands and my leg behind me and he had a rope so he tied me and our drag home
1: oh my god
2: and that day he was telling me "Today is your last day on earth I remember his wife her name hawa she was coming nearby, saying, "What are you waiting? Why don't you just kill him like a chicken?" And this is the time that I was thinking, "What is really wrong with this woman? She has a children, man, a even f- someone younger than me. Why she hated me?" How um, old,
1: how old were they?
2: Um, she she has some youngest and some older. No, no, the,
1: the man, the man and the wife. How old were they? The master and the. How old are they? No, how old were they at that time? The the master and his wife.
2: They were just there in front of me. when This conversation taking place when I was brought back after I skipped. And I'm still tied down. I was still seeing my own blood running. No, but were they in their
1: 40s? How old were they?
2: No, I don't know the age, but I think they were about that. Okay. I could right. say so about 40s of. Wow. Man. maybe less than that. That's just evil. So basically... Um, evil, man. Basically, mm-hmm. that's that day. I just, I just prayed. I, because my parents are Christians, yeah, um, and Roman Catholic. And I just remember when my mother used to teach me Christian when I was still young. Say, do you know that when you are alone, you're not alone. God is in your midst. If you are two, God's always in your midst. So, I'll pray. So I just at that moment closed my eyes and said, God, I have hope in the future, and I love my parents. Mm-hmm. Please don't let them kill me. Yeah. And I see Jim, I was just walking and looking at me with his rifle ready. And he came to me and he said, I'm going to release you, but if you attempt again, I will not waste time, I will shoot you. And after he released me, and I thought I was being disabled because I was tied up for a long time, yeah. I, I recovered well, and today I'm walking well without any problems course, I can see any scars yeah. in my legs, but um, I waited for three more years until when I turned age of 17 in 1996, exactly the same year when uh went left Sudan. That's the year that I was actually able to skip first time and final. Um, and when I left at age of 17, I was ready for anything that would actually come in front of me. Or confronted me. I said, "I'm not longer seven years old or 14 years old." I would fight back. Yeah. And this is where, when I ran to another tower nearby after long, long um, hours running in the forest, mm-hmm. um, you know, the man who helped me, Skip, his name Abd who's a northern Sudanese Arabs. Muslim man, mm-hmm. uh, a lorry driver or truck—you call a truck, truck driver—open big truck where yeah. they loaded with some yeah. goods when i ran to him and i said i need help and i need to skip to anywhere that i would be safe and meet people that i may relate to or from southern sudan yeah uh, he told me you know i know this story i know many people kids like you from south sudan who ran away from their masters and mm-hmm. sometimes we help them yeah i would help you but if anybody stop us on the roads because when you go to the checkpoint they call it checkpoints yeah you drive a few miles and then you have a police there and they inspected the car what you have and who's in there so if anybody at that particular moment find you and want to take you i will not be in position to to to, to actually defend you yeah yeah so i said you know God is great, let's go. Yeah. So nobody that took me. When we got to the end, which is one of the biggest towns in northern Sudan, that's very close to south Sudan, um, he, the same person, put me on the train. He paid for the train. Oh, that man. took me to a place called uh, al And from there, I got on the bus and I went to Sudanese the capital of Khartoum. I remember I arrived like at midday, mm. Uh, the sun was very, very hot, and I have no idea. And I spent hours sitting there like a street boy until these two gentlemen who are from my tribe were coming. They're working, actually, in a riverside. They make bricks. Mm-hmm. They were looking dirty, and they were just trying to catch up. The last bus they're them to a refugee camp called Jabarona. And that camp is where the people from southern Sudan who came to the north we're being designated a place that is completely outside, a uh, couple hundred miles away from the city of Khartoum, and these people say they're only waiting for the UN to provide them water, food, and everything else. And of course, the Sudanese government were controlling the food when the UN agencies or anybody bring them this aid um, uh, uh, thing to be given to refugees, which. You shouldn't be a refugee in your own country. The citizen government controlled them. And they used that either to convert kids or denied giving you enough food to eat. So these are the two gentlemen who took me to a place called Jabrona, where they live. Because they asked me from what tribe I was from. They asked me if I could remember my chief in the village. Because that's how they set up sort of the village. If yeah. from this uh, belonged to this chief from this village the you and you were know people from that area, they will know your parents, mm-hmm. and this is where I went and found actually my stepmother was there in that village. She escaped and she was there with her children. Wow! So that's where I stayed in that uh, refugee camp called Jabrona. So you you
1: you. You uh you happen to find her? Maybe? Yeah, um, I happened to find her like a village. coincidence. She just, of course, yes. Oh, so wow. this is
2: after I spent many days, you yeah. know, with the people I don't know. They yeah. only know my parents. Yeah. Uh, and they knew that that's my a mother and father were done in their life. Until because it's huge, it's very populated. Yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, uh, it's, so basically that's a place where I stayed until, yeah. uh, I was able to also skip Sudan. A uh, few years later. Doing everything through black market, Mm. living by land, taking a train from Sudan to Egypt border in a place called Halfa. And from Halfa we took this big chief that goes all the way to Aswan in in Egypt, uh, one of the tourist area that a lot of Europeans visit. Aswan? Aswan, yes, yes, Aswan. So we took uh, a boat towards Red Sea where, where I went. I went to actually Egypt by land, I never flew and it took me many, many days. That's a long way. And I was <laughs> yeah. there without wow. anything. I don't have a backpack, I don't have anything. I Nothing. don't have even money for food. I was fed by other people that I do not know. Wow. Until when I get to Aswant, I was also helped put on the train all the way to Cairo. And I remember I arrived in a place called Ramses, one of the busiest uh, city in Cairo. And we got off in early in the morning, and I spent the entire day sitting there in one of the shade. Um, and one Egyptian uh, taxi driver who saw me when I first got off, he's been picking up people and dropped them off, mm-hmm. came to me and asked me uh, Samara. That's the way they call black people. Samara, like. A word that I use, and I said, yes, and I said, what are you do when you've been sitting here in morning and is that, is that a derogatory term or? it is, just, is uh, yes okay. but but uh, you, we have no way we accepted the way as such, and okay. uh, he said, he speak Arabic and I speak fluently but because he have Egyptian accents, I was a little bit uh, yeah I know struggling to understand, and he said there's people like you uh, that's always come from Sudan. And he was making fun of me. Uh, you know, <laughs> who make you angry? Why all of you are coming to Egypt? Uh, and, oh, uh, making a joke. Yeah, he was making oh, a joke okay. and okay. he was saying a thing. And I said, I-, I need help. I need to go. If you can uh, take me to where uh, people like me are, I would be happy. He said that a church called Sigakini in a place called Abbasia in Egypt, in Cairo. I would take you there because there are many... Uh, southern Sudanese and people from your country there. Um, and I told him I don't have money, uh, so he was very kind, he bought a bottle of water uh, and a sandwich, I remember, first time I had uh, a sandwich with uh, something, I don't know what to call it, uh, I don't know the name of it. it's one of the favorite Egyptians sort of food. Okay. Um, and I then arrived in that church called Sakakini, and there were a lot of people there and one of the catholic um you know uh, father who was there uh, provide these people the newcomers who have not placed they give you two blanket and you sleep where somewhere there they provide you food mm-hmm. twice a day yeah. and they hang the name of the people on like you make where you announce anything on the church or in the mass and this the name they put your name your chief your tribe if anybody from your area come and know you and know your family, they could help you stay with them because Egypt is the, one of the biggest countries that if you don't have money, you don't, you, you don't have a place to stay. It's just like in America, you could be homeless on the street. Yeah. Hmm. Until one of the gentlemen called Po Tem, he's in Washington, D.C. today. Uh, called came, what? It's Po Tem. Po Tem? Yeah, this gentleman, I call him my hero because it he was him who came and actually... Uh, took me from that church to his house. He was living in two-bedroom apartment with 13 children and his wife. Damn. Ooh. So, yeah, 15 people Ooh. and two-bedroom apartment. But wow. he was very kind to bring me in to make a number of And he brought uh, you in on top he of that. He brought me in. And I remember we shared balcony and a small living room. Mm. This is where all boys sleep in. It's in one room was packed with the girls. and the other room <laughs> where he and younger children yeah. sleep in. And he is the same gentleman who took me to the UN office in Mandacin, one of the city in Egypt. And that's where I went and uh, share my story because what the UN does is that you give your own testimony. What happened to in Sudan? Why are you leaving Sudan? They don't care about your parents' story or anybody's story. You tell your own story. Mm-hmm. And that's what I present. I tell them I was actually... Kidnapped and taken to slavery at age seven. Yeah. And I spent 10 years in captivity. And after escaping, coming to Khartoum, I felt that uh, I'd still be treated the same way. Because yeah. how could I be a refugee in my own country? Yeah. Why would they put me in a place where there's no public transport, no food, nothing? Everything people struggle. They mm. wait for only UN to provide. Uh, and UN agencies are not allowed themselves to go they give to Sudanese and Sudanese government have to send their own people mm. depending on when they want to go what the amount of the food they want to give yeah. and and i see people fight over water until people died <sighs> these refugees just yeah. struggling to survive yeah. so um, this gentleman one who took me to the UN office and i share my story of being slave for 10 years and how i won they have an opportunity to relive my dreams again. Uh, it took me two years, retelling the same story, being interviewed by this group and that group until what they call INS, I don't know what they stand for. Um, Americans, experts, the government or agencies uh, was then interviewed, given last interviewed. my uh, last interview guaranteed and uh, granted me uh, settlement to America uh, was sponsored by a Christian organization called Lutheran Social Services to Fargo, North Dakota, in August 13, 1999. That's when I came North here. North Dakota. <laughs> North Dakota. I came here without knowing <laughs> nothing about America. People, mm-hmm. language, culture, anything. I don't know. And It was really a big... Uh, I'm sorry, you said 1999? 1999. It mm-hmm. was really a big opportunity for me. I remember when I first... Um, welcome and taken to my apartment that were rented, one bedroom apartment by Luton Social Services. The My caseworker was a Somalian guy, mm. his name Ahmed. And Somalian that uh, doesn't know Arabic, of course he's a Muslim, and I remember when he first greeted me, he said Asalaamu Alik. And I said Alaikum salam." and I was excited to try to speak to him, and he said, that's what I only know. Yeah, oh, and, really? and then he went back, um, <laughs> yeah. and then things, start getting tough for me to communicate what I want what they want to communicate to me I don't speak English nobody was translating oh, man. so I remember he took me to my apartment he gave me a tour uh, they shopped for me there were meat there were everything there I don't know how to cook and I even remember he bought me he ordered uh, uh, you know a medium, a pizza uh, from Pizza Hut and it was still fresh very hard and he opened it, and he said this is your food And I was picking up the pizza looking at it, melding with cheese I said what kind of food it is cuz I never ate it. Oh, wow, <laughs> and I don't know So it was uh, wow. it was funny. He was laughing at me and I said "No." so I stick eating cookies every day and bananas and Oh, you didn't Not, eat the pizza? I, no, I didn't eat the oh, pizza. Okay, right. And I didn't know how to cook. So it yeah. took days until they hired somebody from Iraq who speak Arabic. Okay. Uh, and when they hired that person, I was relieved. We, we have to communicate properly at that time. And I told him that I'm very, very happy mm. for this organization that has sponsored me and for the U.S. government and the U.S. people for, um, for the opportunity that they have uh, given me yeah. uh, to relive my dreams again. And I told them that I hope one day I would make a difference because uh, what is good my freedom if my people are still in bondage? What is good my freedom if millions of men and women around the world are still being mistreated and living uh, in the same way that I was? Because I told him that in 10 years in captivity, I used to lie awake at night and wonder who will come and free me. And I told them today there are still many, many hundreds of thousands. Uh, southern Sudanese who are still living dream of freedom who want to be free like me yeah so I told them I want to move where there is Sudanese so I can communicate with them easy can help me uh, get uh, adjusted to American way of life um, he communicated my complaint and request until when they came they came to me with a multiple choice they said we have places that have a lot of South Sudanese. We have Iowa. They said Des Moines, Iowa. We have uh, San Jose, uh, San Francisco. We have mm. Phoenix, Arizona, Houston, Texas. And I said Iowa. I have no idea where Iowa was <laughs> out the way <weather. laughs>
0: Another cold place.
2: So well, I How, ate how our, was that first winter? It was it was real extremely that's was one of the reason I complain about North Dakota because wow. my apartment in the first floor. Yeah. And sometime I try to open my window, I can't see nothing. It's wow. completely Just covered. Snow. Just snow and I was wow. landing bicycle. I don't know how to ride bicycle first time. Wow. And they I found that they buy me bicycle and I go out in the snow and I keep falling and so I keep laughing. I have no idea whether they were laughing. So I would do all these funny things because wow. I was trying to catch up and imagine I was 18 going to 19s and uh, I was learning everything that I had missed in my life, hmm. and that's the disadvantage of what happened, where my childhood was completely taken away from me. I did not enjoy anything. so I was living my own world. I didn't know history. I didn't know geography. I didn't know anything. Um, so it was a huge struggle. But I was thankful that I was able to have that opportunity to be in America, and I knew that my life would be perfect one day. But One of the biggest uh, question was what would I do to help those who are still in my position? Mm -hmm. And this is where in 2000s, I was able to be contacted by American anti-slavery group in Boston here. The human rights organization had been doing incredibly well uh, making sure that they are advocating on behalf of people of Sudan and Southern Sudan in particular and other marginalized Sudanese who are still in slavery so they contacted me while I was in Iowa, and I was asked to come and visit their offices in Boston. I liked what they were doing, and I felt that if somebody who's not a Sudanese, not black Africans doing this, why not me? I told them that I, have no, I, don't, I don't know the language well, but you can hire somebody that can translate uh, my story, telling them in Arabic, and then they can share in English. I'll be happy. So they hired somebody, and I worked with the American and said it was in May 14, 2000, and I was very fortunate in 2001, where I met uh, with one of the icon of this country, people who have made America great to where it is today, uh, late uh, Credit Scott King, the, the widow of Mother Luther oh, King. Oh, you met her? I met her, she presented oh, wow. a award to us uh, called Boston Freedom Award to mm-hmm. Dr. Charles Jacobs, uh, along uh, with the mayor of Boston, Thomas Menino, rest in peace. These are one of the people that I met mm-hmm. first time. When I was honored by her to come and watch uh, the two movies, uh, the one of the movies, they I have a dream speech by Dr. King, where he addressed that huge crowd, uh, Lincoln Memorial. Mm-hmm. I have stood in the same place and I address it, not the same crowd, but I have the same people who came out for me in mm-hmm. some years later in Washington. She was very kind. She said, Francis is young, but I want to remind you, you may not know what I'm talking about, but you are our hero. said, my husband did what exactly you do now. Later on, he did mm-hmm. not survive to witness it, but yeah. he set us free. Yeah. So I watched that, uh, you know, I was dream uh, speech uh, little king mm-hmm. that day i watched also a 10 commandments speech about the jewish when the Mosul said let my people go mm. when he talked to the pedal when they were slaving in egypt mm. and and i said wow i wish what happened to the jewish people when the sea opens and, and when the egyptian were trying to come to get them back the sea um, i mean they were there was they sang on the the water and, yeah. and and the Egyptian and the Jews already crossed yeah. to the Promised Land. You where wish you are. could see that. I said I wish I could see man, that to I my see that too, Man, mm. I wish I could and, see that too. Um, man, I wish uh, I could see that too. And I said I'm gonna do my best. Yeah. I, would, I, I promised her. I said she yeah. would patting my shoulder, said I know you'll be the voice of the voiceless. Mm-hmm. Uh, indeed, uh, from that day on, I never stopped. I started speaking out, and I was honored uh, at many traditional. Black colleges, from Howard to Morehouse to many other in Louisiana, I can't even call the name of them. Speaking I mean,
0: Xavier Dillard, yes, Dillard,
2: yes, all of these colleges have invited me, and um, it was through how she actually um, assured me that what I was doing was right. Things uh, I may not have people who uh, will listen to me right away but i continue to tell the story I continue to make their awareness and persist until you see your people are free and indeed i was very my happiest moment was when south sudan um, declared at the world youngest country i witnessed that i was in the crowd mm. uh, i left from here with a videographer generals in the united states and many other celebrities uh, including joy Clooney, uh, joy Clooney, who went there and john panegas George Clooney was there. Yeah, all these people came there and I was very, very proud. And um, I see people crying. I was crying among them. How long it took us to be free, yeah. at yeah. Um and, and, and that's what the moment where I felt my advocacy did not just um, in a event, I was able to achieve something. But yet again, the people of Sudan, partly like in Darfur, in Southern Blue Nile, which is one of the region, and also uh, Southern Kordofan, another region within Sudan, are still struggling, these are black Africans who have fought alongside with us, some of them. And, and, and of course, the 27 million people who are still slave worldwide, the human trafficking, that's something that nobody talked about. Yeah. And it is happening, like in the state of Florida, where it is uh, the entry point, because it's bordering those countries where we have a lot of immigrants come in, mm-hmm and a lot of these people end up being held in slavery because slavery can be defined in different forms. Because there are people who work for no pay under threat of violence. Yeah. Sometimes they're being tricked by the business people, men and women, yeah. telling them come, we will provide you a job. And when they get here, they confiscate their documents and they put them to work, whether the hotel or some place where, or including, uh, wow. uh, you know, Sex slavery that we talked about, people do not talk about this much. It is happening even in Middle East, in anywhere. It's uh, huge here. Yes, huge it's huge, and is. nobody want to talk about it. So these are part of the thing that concerns me. I'm sorry, what,
0: sex S- slavery? Sex slavery is huge in the United States. Huge. In the United States? In is the United, United yes. States. Homeland Security will let you know there's about three million women in the United States in some level of sexual slavery. Wow. They use drugs to keep them addicted. Yes. Uh, a lot of them are immigrant women. Yes, wow. And uh, they get them hooked on drugs, threat of violence, and then they, hook evil, them up, then they hook them on drugs, and then that it's usually heroin or something strong like that, where they need the fix after a while, <clears throat> and they stay in the violence. It's a, it's a s- serious problem. That's
1: evil, man. That that is um, it's <clears> really really um. Anyway, but that it, it's just a, it's just amazing sometimes. Like I'm I'm really um. I'm really humbled by the stories that we hear on this podcast, um, the the things that you go through, or that you've been through. Um, it's just like I can't even imagine. I, I, it's like we we like to think how bad we have it here in America, you know. And we we have some issues. Like our biggest issue probably in America is probably just racism. Um, but we don't. I don't. I don't have any kind of comparison to what you've been through. You know, the only people who could have who could offer a comparison are. My great 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 grandfather and mother, who were actual slaves, you know, Um, but just to like you've, I'm sure you already know, but you've been blessed to to come out of that, you know, like you you were when you were on the floor and he and you're just praying, man, those people are just evil, but and then you, you you the when you when you got away and 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 then you got on a. You you ran across the one guy who would let you get in his truck, and then he paid for your ticket to to get up out of there. Like it's it's just a huge blessing. Like I just see blessings all the way. It's still hard, but you 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 were blessed with the way out. Like I mean, did you even eat that time? Like I'm just thinking, how long of a journey was that from the time that you the last time you ran away to the time you finally made it in Egypt? Like how long was that period of time?
2: Um, Each journey has its own distance and uh, struggle. Yeah. Uh, when I finally skipped from the farm where I was working for ten years,, yeah. um, it was the same town that I have always wanted to rent to called Motari. Yeah. And it was actually they call uh, a market Day, which is like a Thursday. Every Thursday they have people from different towns coming to that one marketplace to sell and buy. And and this is where I was in that crowd where I went to and I would help mm-hmm. it was a distant of running almost 6 7 hours I was just in the bush
1: just running, running
2: randomly like to a place I have no idea like until, forest, until I hit into the next towns wow because my my
1: idea was I just want to get away from these people <laughs> Can I can, and, I can I ask you a dumb american question right now It's a dumb question. I'm sorry. Can I ask you? There's not a dumb question, but ask it. You'll work on it. (laughs) (laughs) Do you ever just want to go back and find that guy and just punch him right in the face? Like, really, just really hard. Like, a a few times, like, just really (laughs) right in the mouth. This is what I'm thinking. Like, if I, let's say I'm free, I got out. I would want to go back and, like, set his house on fire or something, like, something crazy. Do you ever think like that or no? Uh, that's not me. That okay. could be my brother, okay. <laughs> um, because right. he—he's right. mm-hmm. the
2: one who believes in violence. Okay. Personally, I do not believe in violence. Okay, okay. If I had an that's opportunity good. today to see Jim Abdullah, yeah. my former master, yeah. um, the only thing I would tell him that he were wrong to take my childhood away and treated me the way he did, but. I will tell them I have forgiven you. I want Jimma to know, I, I hope that he's still alive, and his mm. children, his wife. So one day they will discover it about me, mm. uh, whether through my book, Escape from Slavery, or through any story that he will read about me, or even meet me in person. I will never punish him. Mm. I will never say anything bad to him, but I will say you were wrong, because we are all God's children, That's whatever beautiful. religion. So <laughs> basically, I, I don't believe in violence. Yeah. Um, that's why I'm using the opportunity that I have to, even I never have no hatred towards Muslims. I have no hatred towards Arabs. I go. only select those who, and even those whom I think they have wronged me, I tell them, you wronged me, but I don't hate them yeah. for any reason per se. But I, I do believe that in any society you have people who are bad and good. Uh, and as I said, in the same Arabs and the same people, and I will help by... And Northern Sudanese Arabs again, and and I was not the only one that had been helped. I'm sure there are many other who made it to freedom mm-hmm. were helped by others. Yeah. So that's that's where I, I actually judge him, but I'm not. Um, I'm a very forgiving person because when you dwell on condemnation or regrets, yeah, you don't actually, uh, you know, have an opportunity to seek, uh, you know. Um, Seek a way that you could actually relive your life again and do great things. Hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I believe, you know, towards solutions rather than condemnation, regrets, because you could condemn or regret many times, and, and nothing will come out. But when you seek after solutions, you could uh, you could actually solve the problems. Hmm. So today, I'm after a solution. The solution in one of the my people are free now. South Sudanese, whether the South Sudan are fighting themselves, yeah. that is internal and can be actually dealt with internally, no external, uh, and, and that's what I see one Sudan that remains as separate country with the changes just come in recently with Bashir being removed finally after he you know, uh, ruled that country for 30 years. Mm of dictatorship where the people are suffering his own people. I want to see democracy in that country. I want to see every Sudanese embracing themselves, um, and, and, and just give them, and I want to see all the great thing happening on this planet Earth. That is my dream. I, and, I, and I believe that people who have this ideology of mindsets that they are better than others, they are wrong, and they yeah. should be condemned or wrong. So your,
0: your traditional name is P-O-L, right?
2: P-O-L, yeah, P-O-L. P-O-L. It's, my full name is Francis P.O.L. Ball Book. So it's a long name, but... I like it. Yeah.
0: It's a good name. You've, you've had the opportunity to meet Coretta Scott's King, Madeline Albright, um, Colin Powell, George W. Bush. Um, George
1: W. Bush, let's not gloss over that one. Uh, <laughs> so you met with him? Yes. How was that injury? Because we, uh, in general, uh, we don't like him. But I assume he doesn't like. him. I don't like him. Um, but I assume that you had a, not my a good experience, and you he was able to help you to some extent.
2: Yes. Um, well, this is outside American politics, and mm-hmm. dislike who is a better president or who not. But to me, and to my people, the people of Southern Sudan, that time. Mm-hmm. He was our hero. He was the only president. He was your hero. Yeah, he's the only U.S. president that have um, break the cycle and came in forcefully and said, I will not leave office before Sudan or Sudanese reach peace. George W. Bush did that. He said he made his word and he does what he says. And he promised me that he would make sure that peace uh, is, uh, you know, sign between the Sudanese people mm-hmm. and that people of South Sudan are giving the God giving right to exercise uh, during referendum uh, in 2011 that we overwhelmingly voted for independent country that would declare on July 9 2011. So President George W. Bush Jr. was a great president for us um, and I met him in those uh, Three visits that I made to the White House. And I remember when I first uh, met him, um, you know, he said, We are doing everything we can. Mm. And the last time when he spoke, when he signed the Stand Peace Act, the bill that actually put more pressure on the Sudanese government in Khartoum uh, to commit to the peace, uh, which gave the pressure to the Sudanese government in Khartoum. Uh, you know the NCP, uh, National Congress Party, the political party we're reading, and uh, NIF, um, which is National Islamic Front, and our movement that's called SPLM, and SPLM led by Dr. John Garang, where we signed the peace in two thousand five. After he uh, signed this uh, document to law, and I think it was, uh, and I remember I mentioned something when he called me, at Francis, get up," uh, and I was sitting in an the midst of next to our senator, yes John Kerry. Uh, and I, I was surprised that he would call me up and, and say something, President Judge Bush. And I, I got up and I had that moment where I said, Mr. President, thank you very much. And I said, if the women and children in Sudan knew today that you have signed the law that would set them free uh, in days and months to come, uh, their uh, sad face would light up with hope. And I said, yeah, put smile in my face, and I hope that you will mean what you say, as you always say. Hmm. You bring peace before you leave office, because a few months uh, before uh, you leave the White House to your own private uh, home. So he said, we will do whatever we can, and peace will ruin in Sudan. So peace was signed on January 1st, 2000, I mean, January nine, 2000, and uh, five in Navajo, Kenya, and I was very, very happy. I remember when I shook hands with Colin Powell, and I said your, Af- your, your, your great-great-parents or- Yeah, your ancestors. Were, uh, ancestors were actually descendants of Africa, and you have a right. You're a powerful man here now, and you should make sure that you win yourself to, uh, you know, along with the special envoy, his name John Danforth at the time, who was envoy of Sudan, uh, and you should witness the peace yourself, Colin Powell, because you have a strong arm and strong voice. He did. Um, he went, and the same thing uh, when I was interviewed when he introduced me to uh, Ms. Kandere Rice, mm-hmm. uh, the Security Advisor at the time, uh, who hugged me and. And thank me for everything she that helped I was, you? Yeah, that what I was doing. Yes, indeed. And I have a picture with her in my book. She does not um, seem like a woman. And, yeah. and I said, You have a voice to speak up on behalf of my people. Yeah. I'm a free man now. I'm in America and I'm actually catching up with the American dream. But what about hundreds of thousands and millions of my people who are still in bondage? Mm. Mm. Please speak up. That's the show. And I said, Please, I want you to help me to testify. To the U.S. Senate, uh, she did the same thing when I actually uh, went to Meldon Albright office. The before they left office a few months before they were leaving Washington in during the President Clinton uh, administration. So I told her that please, U.S. have a strong arms and a strong voice, but I will emphasize on a strong voice because I don't need war. I want to speak tell the Khartoum to stop marginalizing and killing my people. Let them free the people of South Sudan and Blue Light, Nuba Mountain and Darfur and every other African who are being oppressed and, and, and marginalized. So uh, she first said when my first visit to her office, she said she was busy with the war in Sierra Leone at the time, that was in 2000. And I said, well, that's one of the country in Africa. I'm happy you're doing something. but. Do people of Sudan do not deserve peace, just like anybody else. And she was courageous. She, she did what she had done, and I was scheduled to testify to the United States Senate that will broadcast live on C-SPAN. And I remember when I was invited, and there's a video of it still on YouTube. You can get it there. I remember I said to the Congress, I'm really humbled to be here today. Um, and I told them that I'm speaking to you because I believe uh, U.S. the capitalism of the world, and my people are suffering. And you, the senator, t- senator, are the strongest, you know, uh, gift that we have. You have a strong voice and a strong arm, and you can urge the presidents and the Western uh, leaders and African leaders and other leaders to make sure that people of Sudan are being protected, particularly in the south. Yeah. Southern region where they're being marginalized and killed every day with bombardments from the government of Sudan. And and I remember uh, Senator uh, Jesse Ham's resident peace. He died from North Carolina. He he said, Francis, we have heard you. We'll do whatever we can um, and we'll make sure that peace is rich in your country. And one of the senator became a friend to me and I'm really, really grateful for him. His name uh, Senator Sam Brownback from Kansas, who mm. became a Kansas uh, governor. He's now, uh, I believe, uh, ambassador at large mm-hmm. in the in the White House here, uh, who took it upon himself to continue advocating and always in touch with me. And mm. I was un- honor. I was in his campaign trial in 2008, and I remember when he opened his headquarters in Iowa. I was the I spoke. Was the first person to speak, you know, mm. inauguration. I remember it was, it was very, very highly contested. This time, that when Obama was very sharp and nobody could beat him words yeah. and everything else. But I watched him speaking there, and I was on his trial. So, okay, I, I it is uh, what I just said. It is U.S. has done a lot, and I just wanted to make sure that I always say this, so America knows, despite what people perceive as. Uh, part of the story of America, to me, I'm grateful for those who have helped us, to George W. Bush, whether he wronged some stuff within his own country here. Yeah. He's my, my hero. And everyone else that work in his administration because he was the only one who managed to bring peace after over 50 something years of struggle of my people. Mm-hmm. So that's the credit I gave it to him. And I'm very proud of what he have done in his records. So, and of course, this is not to discriminate others. They have done their part, but he did it. He finally brought peace, and peace we witness during his tenure when he was the president of the
1: United States. You, you, you've, uh, you've taken him up a notch in my book, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Just a little, a little. I, I, I might like him a little bit more. I don't like him, but I, I like him a little bit more. Um, th- this is amazing. Uh, this is amazing story. So. What are you? What are you? What are your plans now? You were the minister for information, culture, youth, and sports on the state level in the government of the Republic of South Sudan. Um, you're no longer that, but do you plan on going back to to help with the future of Sudan? Do you want? Are you going to stay here and work from here? Like, what are your plans for the future?
2: Was my plan has always been. To, um, I know. If I have an experience or knowledge or anything that I had now uh, that Americans have given me after I came here as a refugee and uh, settled here and got everything that I have today, Mm -hmm. I think uh, I would be more needed in South Sudan than here in America because the people there are still very vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Um, And to make that country a great country, it, it would need those of us in diaspora coming back um, and giving back whatever experience that we have, knowledge that we have, and energy and all the things that we have learned, you know, all the other democracy that we have learned so that we um, help reform those countries. Mm. And my dream is when I went back to South Sudan, I went back on July 7, 2011, just uh, two days before the independence. Of, of South Sudan mm-hmm. as, a, as a young country, and after seeing my flag flying after the host, the flag of South Sudan, and I, I felt that you know I should prolong my staying in South Sudan, where I started working with the government on a center label as a director in one of the ministry uh, of environment, and afterwards uh, when I felt that there's a need for me to work and also make sure that a little knowledge that I have, and skill, uh, better utilized for the betterment of that young country to bring it up. I accepted the nomination, I accepted the appointment by the governor uh, of my state to work at the state ministry, uh, at running the state ministry as, uh, for information, culture, youth, and sport, and also acting state minister for uh, minister of local governments until I left uh, from my appointment to my uh, resignation when I get out from the government because I felt that time I need to come back to resituate myself and go back to school and uh, just take care of my family too. Understood. Which uh, I felt that it was another obligation to, to make sure that my family are first settled. Sure. So, my dream, my longer dream, um, is to go back to South Sudan and, and serve the country in whatever capacity that I will. Uh, Contribute back to that country, so I need more knowledge here. I need more educations. I need more um, strength. So when I go back, that I can do. Yeah. um, You know, because I that country need a lot of work.
1: You be of greater service. uh, Yeah. So
2: my is to just go back and do whatever I can, in whatever capacity that the country and the community will, uh, you know, ask me to do. I already constructed uh, middle school there. Mm-hmm. uh and that school was since 2009 I did it it's eight classrooms I'm mm-hmm. um, something that I'm very happy I help people with uh, uh, board halls where they can have uh, you know a clean drink of water uh, because they were drinking from the river mm-hmm. uh, these are a little things that I have done there and we still need more of that um, but my immediate dream of going back to South Sudan to help you know, transforming that government, you know, South Sudan one day. yeah, um, And that's what I have because a lot of us who came here, lost boys of South Sudan, and other South Sudanese who came here, got education and everything else, do want to go back and help, you know, transform that country from where people look at it now as a more... Uh, full of corrupt leaders and people who uses uh, tribes against other tribes and other things that may not be uh, good for the country who just get out from war. Yeah. So I want to go and say to my people, we have everything. This is, we have a fertile land that you can grow about anything there. We have oil. We, we don't need money from anybody. We just need leaders that can fix it. And I think presidents Uh, Obama said that when he went to Egypt in 2008 or 2009, when he said Africa do not need food, Africa needs leaders. And and this is what Africa needs. I think he's right. Hmm. Yeah, because we have everything there. Everything. And talking from perspective of my country, South Sudan, which is oil rich, Mm -hmm. uh, after those of the country of Nigeria and many others, um, including Goals and other uh, minerals. I, I I think that you know South Sudan would be a great country if it has the leaders who really know what to do and how to unite their own people. Yeah. Because unity number one. If you are not united, you will not have security. Everybody will be doing some things that are not uh, good for the country that's thriving for the better. So that's that's my dream. I I is. I don't know how soon that will be but I have that in mind to go back to so to help so
1: first of all thank you for sharing your life story with us it's very powerful very very powerful and, and I'm going to say it again God has really blessed you. When, you when you have someone who's blessed to the extent that you have been blessed it's for a reason and obviously you're, we're tapping into some of that reason now um, so yeah God has really blessed you Really, really blessed you, and I, I, I know you know it. I know you see it. You're a very God-conscious person. I know, I know it. But I just have to say it because even though I'm a Muslim, I feel, I feel really terrible that other Muslims, people who call themselves Muslims, has treated you this way. I really, really do. We're both Muslim, and I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a big, strong, burly man. I don't cry easily, but I felt the need. I almost, I almost teared up during this podcast just listening to the way that people who call themselves Muslim have treated you. Um, and man, if I if I could, like if I were you, I would seriously go back there and set his house on fire. That would do anything. And just beat, just beat him really badly. What? Like really, really badly. But hold on. Um, but still, even above all that, this is still a business podcast. Ultimately, the goal of this, doing business in Africa 9, uh-huh. I want to know... What kind of business opportunities are there in Sudan? I don't want to go there um, um, and and get into some kind of weird situation. Like, you know, so the South Sudan is a very young country, but are they friendly to African Americans, people who want to go over there and do business, invest in the country, not get taken advantage of? What kind of are
0: Or abuse the people of South Sudan either.
1: Exactly. What, and, and I know you said you know, um, you're still very familiar with all the people in government because you were in it. Um, what kind of opportunities are there over there?
2: First and foremost, let me just say this. Uh, Africa as a whole yeah. is a home for African Americans, men and women, mm-hmm. businessmen or businesswomen, so anything that, you feel like, and you don't have to do these things in order to go back there, Yeah, it is home. It is the first home, it is where your ancestors came from and I always see there's no need to squeeze, you can have that fresh smell, fresh uh, land where you could just walked as much as your feet could feed you, you I, mean, I can make you walk, yeah. you know, and see everything that you want to see, yeah. from wild animal to everything else that you see on the Discovery Channel. I must talk, uh, about South Sudan, how South Sudan is a potential uh, investment place and in, as we speak to now, despite that South Sudan has just gained that independence in 2011 on July 9, uh, and then went back to internal war in 2013, 2003, when the, the first by-presidents of the country uh, staged coup, or how they call it, because you want to be president, while the sitting president's term yeah. uh, was not yet over. South Sudan is still yet a place where you see everybody there, from mm-hmm. Europeans, including Americans, including people from Middle East, mm-hmm. people from Asia country, all this include from other African countries uh, are investing heavily. What you could invest on it, there are many things depending on <clears> what. Nature business you want to do because South Sudan as I said is a marketplace. Everything is marketable there mm. <laughs> We have oiled. We have people who are in the gold. We have people who are doing many things in other infrastructures so the idea of having uh, My brothers and my sister African American investing there or any other American or which we have our own American Embassy I used to visit there in American holidays mm-hmm. in Juba where you would have an opportunity to see the opportunities yourself okay. um, without anything. And as I said, I can be. We have an embassy here in Washington D.C. South Sudan Embassy. We have also representative to the UN uh, mm-hmm. also, and I'm very well. All these ambassadors in UN and in Washington both knows me. The uh, president of the country knows me because I was in the government, hmm. not in the st- central level, but I was in the cab- uh, in, in state level. When I was working with the central go- uh, government as well as a director, mm-hmm. I was very much a director within the office of the minister who's working in the cabinet of the presidents. And I always see presidents, and I know he's someone who's looking for investors to come to that country. Yeah. I would be very, very glad. Uh, to lead and to accompany some of you who may have a business idea, uh, whether you or anybody else, that, and you would meet any persons that you wish to meet, whether governor, mm. uh, in any states of your interest to invest in whatever business you're interested, or the presidents of the country himself, because mm. the, the, the minister of the presidents is someone who was in the United States, some close friend to me, and almost every other person working there I know them, including chief of staff. So, these are the guarantee that I would say safety-wise, South Sudan is safe. It's just like in America, some it depends where you hanging in, what part of the yeah. city you went to, and what happened yeah. in that particular area. South Sudan, relatively like any other country, where, yes, there are some places, for instance, Upper Nile, which is a region within South Sudan, where the war actually started it, um, uh, a tribal war in 2013, 2013. This is the place that is still advisable, you know, but people still go there. They're still present. This is where the oil is flowing, uh, in Polish, in some other area. Uh, there's still many planes flying there, European flying there, doing businesses in the oil field. But other regions like Barkazal and Equatoria, where is the capital of Sudan, of South Sudan, is based at uh, Juba, these are relatively calm and safe, and you will be guaranteed by the, the, the embassy there. You will be advised, and you will be advised, and when I say embassy, the U.S. Embassy. Sure. Um, and, and these are places that you could definitely do, businesses, anywhere. Yeah. Um, Friendly-wise, oh, people are very friendly. Hmm. Are very friendly, and you will see the joy of seeing their own brothers and sister, African-American, coming back and Bringing businesses to them, because when you work there as an investor, you will have a lot of national uh, employees. So yeah. you are helping in the state economy and uh, you know and everybody will welcome that. Yeah. And, and these are the opportunities that are there. and uh, I, I like what my brother, one of the artists, uh, always uh, talking about uh, rebranding Africa and how Africans are not really selling Africa so that everybody could come there uh Econ uh, the the the, the, yeah. the musician I, I like I follow him uh, and I like what he always say mm-hmm. and I wish you know I could meet him to tell him that continue what you're doing because everybody's scared of Africa mm-hmm. because what the, uh, the, the what the media or Western media reflect about Africa is completely everything negative. Always anger violence minute uh, diseases diseases that's they it. don't show that's all it the is. best right? yeah and when you go for instance you fly to Uganda mm. Kampala you find yourself like in some mini downtown somewhere here yeah the same thing in Nairobi you will not you will see the same you know this is name this is something whatever name it is there yeah. are a bunch of things yeah. the same, you go to Kagali Kigali in Rwanda yeah which just got out from the uh, Genocide that we heard of in 1994. Yeah, it's the most cleanest country. I've heard that the last and, podcast. And you yeah. can uh, drive as far as you could drive. Yeah, you still have, uh, you know, a place where you could stop on the road, buy some coffee, food, anything. Uh, it's the most luxurious place, yeah. clean wise, you know. IG. So these are the places, South Africa. These places are yet unknown to many in the West, because mm-hmm. what the media portray about Africa is always negative. But and it, we need to yeah. you know, mm-hmm. make sure that we replicate that by showing the, the, the best part of Africa.
3: Yeah.
0: Yes. Well, no. we really feel that you're definitely one of the best parts of Africa, and we're glad not only to share the story of triumph, but of the healing, that people of African descent from across the diaspora and in the continent, we need to, to move on after this period of what they call European aggression. And now we need to take ownership of, of our community and of ourselves. and I'm talking about it economically. Mm-hmm. To, you only do engage in commerce with people you know and you have a relationship. You, I mean, you could buy some stuff online, but mm-hmm. that's not the majority of commerce. And I really love the extent, what I've noticed uh, from an investor perspective, we've had these conversations before, is because since people don't know Africa that well, the even when they're trying to, in the, the due diligence you need to help put a contract or a proposal together is sometimes anemic, you know? Um, the person It's a sound idea, but it's missing. Th- those are the key relationships that you have in the government. The, those, how you see the connections between the different groups, like, hey, we need a well, but this is actually gonna do, uh, I'm just gonna make some stuff up. Mm-hmm. The school is gonna be affiliated with that. There's this road, now we're gonna have this economic activity. Mm-hmm. This is the 10, 20 year plan, and this is how this project fits in. Investors need to understand that. Um, and I don't hear robustly in, in a small. I'm in mean small investor world um, here, in, here stateside, who look into international. Even the people who want to invest in Africa, who have expert some level of expertise, say it's challenging. And when I, when you hear projects and you compare them, you juxtapose them to an, another international project. Sometimes the, the preliminary research is weaker. Um, because it costs money and people mm-hmm. aren't used to doing that because it raises the upfront cost, Have you seen anything to help with do they call them soft costs? The soft costs are to help investors, be them African um, African Americans or others from the diaspora, or other investors to get over that hump? Because that's one of the things I've seen, that the soft costs and the trade mission relationships, together so you can get those dollars in this case to go in have you seen anything or actually that's something i would love to work on by the way well um what i would
2: say of south sudan south sudan is the youngest country ever there's a place that's we call the open market Mm -hmm. everybody could come and sell and buy anything sale mostly (laughs) we don't we don't have we don't uh, export anything Mm -hmm. what Um, would you export um Uh, but we import everything to South Sudan because it's a brand new country. My country is very flexible. My country is keen of welcoming every investor, small and big Mm -hmm. investors. Uh, Our presidents and the leadership from all levels to the state level are willing and welcoming and caring and treating every Person that had a contract with uh, you know high esteem of respect and honor, meaning that everything done transparently. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yes, there are elements of people who always want to sandwich themselves inside your uh, business so that they 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 get some percentages yeah in the duck those mm-hmm. things are It's you to identify them when you see them because it depends on you if you want to do honest business you will definitely deny them <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if, so if you want obvious. to do a business that is to cover up some of these things then you'll be dealing with such people because they are dealers they are just a broker whatever that they are there sure. but if you come straight to the leadership uh, of, the, of the of the country um, you will be guaranteed because as I said it's a young country where we need your expertise whatever you will say you will do we rely on it heavily mm. the whole country will rely on it for instance you become you want to invest uh, in, in in oil uh, sector uh, you know or you will bring us equipments that we do not have the whole country will you know rely on that to come because that will open up another gate the opportunity for the country to grow so as I said you know we are an open market and the good news is the South Sudanese majority of them are very uh, these are the people who are either way in the West uh, working in the government mostly except the president of course has been uh, uh, one of the year of war been fighting all his life since he was young until the country get independence, become a president, never went anywhere only when school in the south and became an army general and become a president when or president of the southern Sudan government then the 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 founder of the movement called SPLM SPLA the part the movement the party become a party uh, in a political party and the army wing Dr. John Graham died in the helicopter crash on July yeah. Uh, you know, t- 2005, hmm. just three weeks after he signed the peace and set in the office as the first president of Sudan. In yeah. 2005, he died and, you know, a look after a crash and our presidents now assume uh, the role of, of because we have a system hierarchy of, that was set in the, in, the, in the bush when they were in the bush. So if this person after this person, if this person not there, the other person take over. And that's how a president comes in. Of course, we conduct an election in 2009 and 2010, and he was elected formally as a president of Republic of South Sudan. So I am talking from the onset of what I know uh, and how honest uh, people are. There are elements of people that may, as I said, may come uh, across but when you doing this is something that as we are talking here in the united states today in america mm-hmm. and if it happened to have a few delegation that are going to see by themselves and meet with the leadership there and even see the available opportunities to invest in mm. or you have your concept in your own mind and just come and share it with us whether this is what we want um you will not just walk there by yourself you will be going uh, for instance, people like me who's familiar who knows and say you know I know what it takes there's such a brothers and sisters from the United States African men to come and invest here they are here to make this country a great country and they belong to this country and they have intention to do honest business and therefore We ask for honest uh, contracts with them, and everything else would be done transparently, as I said. And this is the guarantee that I believe, because our country heavily rely on investors, because we have no experience. There are things that we have not tapped yet onto in South Sudan, because we don't know how to do them. Mm. We have many minerals, you know, things that we do not know how to operate them. We have them. We only knew oil, which was through China, Malaysia, and all these. The other one is still responsible for it today. Mm-hmm. They're charging us heavily, uh, you know, but because we lack that experience, uh, personally, uh, I, I want to see, you know, my brothers, sister African-American, investing in my country. Because they, my story and, and the story of my people became success because I had an opportunity to be invited by them to their homes, to their community, talking to all people from all walks of life, Muslim, Christians, black Americans, and all of them, including my Angela, who read out my story. When you step in one of the African museum in San Francisco, the first thing you, foot, you step your foot, you will hear my story. She's...
1: My angel's reading it.
2: Yes, reading it for oh, me. Wow. These mm. are things that I have done, and many, many, I from Al Chapton to uh, Reverend Justin Jackson and everybody. These leaders, I met them, and the whole of them were great to yeah. me. Each of them hugged me, each of them um, advocate on behalf of my people. And people saw Sudan freedom was not just uh, from us alone fighting the battles mm-hmm. over 50 something years yeah. or 21 years, but through the people who stood with us. And I think as a way to return our great kindness is also to consider uh, that's, these people also deserve the opportunity to invest there. Like we're having Chinese, we're having Malaysian, we're having all these people who literally did nothing except Chinese were helping, taking our oil through Khartoum. And they are the no ones dominating everything. Do
1: you guys so, still not have an oil refinery
2: down there? We still don't. We still, that's what, uh, these are part of the thing that we... Yeah, we need to build one.
0: Come for Yeah, <laughs> well. it's only a few dollars, right? Yeah, a couple hundred. So,
1: so uh, two two questions. Um, so, Shaman and I, the Not Done Podcast, is part of a group called the Empower Brokers, and um, we are exploring doing business in Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, several of the members have already done a lot of business in Africa, mm-hmm. but I would like to pre-invite you. The next meeting we have, I'd like for you to join us um, because I think you. You would be good and I think you you may have a lot of insight that some of probably most of the people don't have. Yes. Um so I'd like you know, to invite you to that. Second question is, um, we'd like to go to Sudan, South Sudan. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you don't wanna do it, just show me where his house is, I'll burn it down. <laughs> <laughs> this guy. I'll burn it down for you. I know you're not gonna do it, it's okay. But I, I really don't like that. I really don't like the way they treated you. Man, that the wife—the wife telling him to.
0: You know that reminds me of. Uh, like, who does she
1: think she is? Like, she anyway. Uh,
0: Badness—it's
1: unacceptable. It really is. But anyway, what are you gonna say?
0: I, I would, I'm trying not to get angry because yeah. he's so positive. I wish we had. I know. Video. I, I, it's just he's the, very calm.
1: You're very, very calm. calm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's like, uh, you know, we're over here like flipping out. Like, oh, who do they think they are? And you know but um it's it's commendable it's very commendable thank you yeah anyway we need to wrap this up because we are at 2 hours and i i don't know the time just vanished i didn't even you know what it was it.
0: we were in i was in the story i was seeing imagining what you were going through and making those journeys and those you had like people making those choices to be human when you needed the help the most
1: that's god man yeah. that's god
0: and i think I think people forget that Mm -hmm. that when when you meet a person who's going through something, you have the opportunity to be human, and you could be transformative in their lives. Yeah, Mm -hmm. you know. Or I remember you said something about that the taxi driver gave you water and a sandwich, Mm -hmm. and you remember that, and that Mm -hmm. was a long time ago. Yes, that just little bit of kindness in at that time was.
1: And he was making fun of you at first, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. 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 Oh, no, but it's just, it's just very, and here's the thing. I'm, I'm joking about setting the guy's house on fire, but I mean, half joking, but the ultimate justice, God is going to take care of everybody, good and bad. So yeah. if you live your life in a way that is not pleasing to God, because the actions that these quote unquote Muslims acted upon, those actions are not pleasing to the God that I worship as a Muslim. Yeah. Um, in no situation do you do you treat a person like that? You said you, they they were peeing on you and stuff. Oh man! And drag. But there's no there's no justification under any circumstances. Would you treat a person like that? I don't care if he's your slave, whatever it is. Is it's, it's just crazy. But um, you know, I I feel confident in knowing that he's not going to get away with that. that their, their wife is not going to get away with that. Even if it's not in this life than the next life Hmm. and i you know if i was him i'd hope to deal with it in this life because you don't want to deal with god directly because in the next life it's another level of punishment that you know people don't want um so anyway i'm kind of joking but i'm not joking like this i'm serious about god bringing justice to whoever Mm -hmm. you know good and bad all the justice goes goes to god but um no, man. You just had. You really. It, the the way I see it, you had like a, a line of people who just looked out for you. Yes. From the time you got to that guy who let you get in the truck, all the way up till you got into Egypt, you had a certain number of people, and God put those people there for you. To yes. meet. You
2: and, and just just to add on, so, this is one of the reasons why I do not generalize. I don't say yeah. all Muslims or all Arabs. Yeah. I believe in any community, any society, there are always good and bad people. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Jim Abdullah and his wife, Hawa. His name is Jim. Jima. Oh, Jima. Jima. Jima Abdullah and his wife, Hawa, mm. and uh, whom actually his wife, Hawa, her brother is the leader of Razegat, which is a tribe that they belong. Mm. And they call him one of the Yero because he, when he lead the war or raid, in southern sudan region he would destroy that village to ashes he would burn it down he would take whatever that, um you know worthy to take to back wow. to. so he was consistent so the that person considered so the, her Awa, considered you know she's from this superior strong wealthy right. family so she she can just speak her mind however to me and I believe this is the same thing with my people in southern Sudan and that's why we have many if this were taken the context of Christian vast Muslim we would have never had a single mosque. Mm -hmm. you know in my state alone northern Barkhazal is almost more Muslims than Christians as we speak today Mm -hmm. Um, and nobody ever revisit the story of marginalizations and uh, Islamization that were used by the student government as the tool to punish us and with not providing services and using other black Muslims to kill us and kidnap our children yeah. and converting them to Islam. So, South Sudan, and me in particular, I considered everybody a hero uh, and people who are character in my my story, in my book, al-Haman, who helped me, mm. the lorry driver, a truck driver, and this Egyptian man, a taxi driver, who helped me to take me to one of the church mm. and provided me with a sandwich and water, yeah. it was a Muslims and you, you can see, we human, we are different. That yeah. those who behave, yeah. those who completely believe that they are better than the others and they don't value you whatever, mm. uh, however way you resist, they still will look you down less. And, and I think that's how I, uh, I look into my story story of my people even during the war, were people who were living in the North Sudans, who were living in Arabs. They were being protected by other Muslim Arabs. And there are those who want to kill them as much as they could find mm-hmm. any. So it is, that's a different story. Um, so, and in our movement then we have Northern Sudanese actually, who are Arabs by identity, were a part of the movement, were fighting their own government, mm-hmm. and their own people who are they share the same religion, yeah. Islam. But so the story was never been about uh, religion per se. Mm-hmm. But it was used by the government as a way to deceive uh, this illiterate community, like Arab tribes who don't know anything, who are not educated, yeah. uh, using the name Allah, giving them weapons and swords, go kill and do this, and they just march in saying Allah Akbar, and they don't know what they're doing, and 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 all of a sudden now they're all realizing what was used. It was a strategy of just marginalized particular community, particular region. Yeah. So um, I'm proud to say that my country today is to host Muslims, and we our president was very clear when we formed a new country in 2011. Mm-hmm. So this country belongs to all of us, Muslim, Christian, and ever during Ramadan or fasting or celebrating he always buy them many gifts and he share with them the meal and he say that this is our country let's protect it together yeah you worship your god but make sure that your citizenship is equally with others make sure that your same rights nobody should allow anything to do tourists anything to do with radicalism and and that's how my country is actually set up today so um but wrong is wrong. Whoever did it should be called out is wrong. And Jima Abdullah and his wife and those Absolutely. who have slaved, many other slaves, yeah. were wrong. And I have no hatred, as I said, as even you. I, all I need, I just want him to know that I'm alive. And that. Did he have other slaves too? Um, a... There are many other slaves. Everybody has slaves. Everybody in the area has a slave. He has slaves. And we are not allowed to be in one place. Mm. They scouted us, you know, because they, oh, don't, they, want our, they don't want to speak in a native language wow. or- Identify ourselves was what was wrong, so they produce separately. And wow. if we meet where we're taking the cattle, you know, we will be asked to speak Arabic, but not so they can understand what we're talking about. So, so, so it was it was a systematic thing that was set up.
1: That was amazing. Um, hmm. One final question, mm-hmm. and then we'll we'll end on this. I know that um, throughout this war, were the Chinese and Indians were they still down there doing business at the same time throughout the war? Through the
2: war, uh, China was one used by the Sudanese government to...
1: To get the oil out, get right? Get
2: the oil out. Get so they everything, were, there. Everything, they were here, there. They were there. They're India, the they were the one who constructed the pipelines from yeah. Upper Nile in southern Sudan region all the way to Port Sudan's um, you know, Red Sea. So basically the same... Pipeline that we're still using today mm. because as I said, we have not constructed our own yeah. yet since 2011 something we should have done We have lots of money, but it is on its way to be done so um, So these people that's why I say personally uh, leaning towards East West, west uh, is, is, is is ideally for me I, I don't appreciate it because mm. I, I believe the West have stood with us and all you know uh, throughout the history, you know, West, uh, particularly America and countries like Norway and many others, yeah. uh, through humanitarian aids, through uh, refugee programs, <coughs> bringing us to this country, Canada, Australia, these countries have stood with us and yeah. we should lean towards them to help us expedite building or constructing yeah. new modern hospital schools, then deciding to be far. Uh, east where China and Russia and some other country are not doing much in our country. They were actually a part of destruction.
1: Were any of the, um, so you, you said you gave a figure of two million, how, 2 million, 2 million people died in that? Yes. Okay. Over 2 million. W- were any of them Chinese or Indian or were they all, or Arab? Or I'm they talking all about South African? Sudanese. I'm They're talking about same. South Sudanese alone. So it was all black Africans. These
2: were black Africans. <laughs> And, and this may not be an accurate uh, number, but you could Google it. It was more beyond that. Yeah. People died during the Amazing. 21 years of Civil War. Amazing. And 4.5 million were displaced. And, and I'm one of the people that find myself in diaspora in the United States now, Man. a dual yeah. citizen in the US.
1: Hmm. Amazing. Francis Buck, thank, thank you, you, for very you very much. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure. Thank you for coming.
2: Thank you very much. I am. I just want to say I am always grateful, yeah. humble, and always appreciative to the love Absolutely. And, and and how much attentions. Um, you know, people like you who, in your own small world, want to make a difference in my life, in my peoples, and I want to guarantee you. I hope this this podcast was grow up to be something bigger, and 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 be a platform and be also a way where we can mobilize or well, African-American brothers and sisters to invest in Africa. Not only, it doesn't have necessary to be in my country, in South Sudan, mm-hmm. but I would be happy to see many of them in my country where it has a lot of potential, a fresh country. Like you have a fresh farm, you can cultivate anything. Absolutely. Yeah, so absolutely. that's that's the opportunity that I want to extend. So now I'm here, I'm honored to come back at any yeah. time to discuss any other.
0: Yeah, w- we're, we're gonna definitely have that podcast about the African Union. It's a South Sudan part of the African Union? We are. We are oh. a member. Oh, wow. We that are was a, a member. Good, that was a powerful vote that happened uh, not too long ago. Too. I think that's exciting. We're, we're, we've heard such powerful stories. I mean, Chris, Chris uh, Jackson comes in when he was there during the... He's Liberian. He mm-hmm. was there during the Liberian coup. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he told us a story of when they took the, the Chief Justice. Mm-hmm. He was in the house and had a conference. And um, we've just met so many people who are just these silent witnesses and also heroes f- for both a travesty but also um, an awakening, a blessing of what the new Africa is. I'm thinking about this. I got mm-hmm. into Africa Beats just recently. Mm-hmm. And uh, I saw... Afro Beats. Afro
1: Beats, yeah. yeah not Africa Beats. <laughs> <laughs> I said Africa Beats. I guess it's the same thing. Yeah. No,
0: no, it's Afro, it's Afro Beats. Yeah, it's Afro Beats, bro. Yeah. Um, and there's a performer, uh, ODG Fuse. He mm-hmm. went from back, back in a uh, mm-hmm. YouTube video from 2014. Mm-hmm. He has a hat that says Tina, T-I-N-A. Mm-hmm. This is the new Africa. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, that spirit mm. that... Not just rebranding with like a lo- logo, but re feeling what Africa means to everyone on the continent of the diaspora. I just feel like it's getting traction. It's definitely getting traction. Yeah. And, yeah. Th- and this podcast is part of it.
1: Yeah. We're definitely getting traction. Like a lot of African Americans over here are just getting tired of the racism, looking at other options. And, um, you know, at the basis of all society's economics. So that's why I thought, hey, let's figure out how we can do some business over there. Let's figure out how we can um, uh, increase uh, awareness of what it really is, yes. not not what you see on TV where it's just yep. starving children and flies and diseases and stuff, no. Mm-hmm. What is it really? I mean, they have cities just like we have cities. Mm-hmm. It's amazing, amazing, uh, like every, literally every single guest we've had, um, they all had a wealth of knowledge that had nothing to do with Ebola virus. Nothing to do. Nothing to do with, <laughs> to do with starving things. children. All like the, there's so much opportunity over there, and we need to just uh, not be so scared of where we all come from. Actually, yes. white people included, we all come from Africa. Literally, everyone on the whole planet. So um, I just think we need to stop, like you know, buying into this. Uh, all of this. This basically just entertainment propaganda. Yes, that's all it is. And you guys get it over there about us too. Yeah. A lot of the older, not so much the younger people, but a lot of the older uh, Africans that I've met, they all have a a feeling like African-Americans were all thugs and, you know, little Wayne and gangsters and that kind of stuff. And they kind of have a a little bit of standoffs because that's what they think. I've I've experienced it myself. So but not the younger people, the older people. Yeah. Um, So we're kind of like getting misinformation about each other and it keeps us divided. Yes. So the po- the point of the, one of the points of this podcast was to help bring us together. Uh, with that, I will say thank you for joining us. Um, we we are honored and privileged to I have had, had no tangents today. We had mm-hmm. zero tangents. That's not like a this s- is the first time <laughs> in forty. This is going to be our forty second episode. This wow. will air at the beginning of um, Ramadan. Um, we have never had an, an episode without a tangent,
0: and you I were the know. first one. You, you talk about our tangents are way gone. Gone. Other <laughs> other side come back Talking about to, movies
1: And yeah It's crazy well, it,
0: it, it was the it was the, uh, the story was so vivid Like in my own imagination I was seeing You like in this Lush field Yeah under know, a mango through, tree You know yeah. And I could smell the mango You know The way you cause, um, I wish People could hear it in your voice but this, to see, it was just coming across, and I could see the sun and it was, and, and the happy people, and then that being taken away, and now it's coming back.
1: You know what else is funny you mentioned? Uh, um, he said this on um, the last podcast, uh, Anthony Jigua. He said a wealthy man might not have any money. He'll just have a bunch of livestock. He'll have cows. Mm-hmm. He'll have chickens. He'll have goats. But he'll have, like, thousands of them. Mm-hmm. And he's, like, the richest guy on earth. And he's like, "How do you tax a guy like that? <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't have cash. It's not cat. What do you What do you do? You want a cow? Here, mm-hmm. take a cow. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So your dad was like one of the richest guys around, mm-hmm. but it, it wasn't like he had money. He just yeah. had yes. a whole just bunch cattle. of stuff. And he that, had the stuff yeah. that mattered and that's food what, and land. That's what matters: <laughs> food, clothing, and shelter. So anyway, I thought that was interesting. Uh, thank you for joining us. You've joined us on the ninth episode of Doing Business in Africa. We were privileged to have been joined by Francis Buck. Um, from South Sudan, which we've learned is different from Sudan. So they got Sudan and South Sudan. Uh, it's a new country in 2011. Yes. OK, thank you for joining us. Um, it was a pleasure to have you. Uh, One.